We are coming this morning to what is our fourth sermon in Paul's letter to the Romans. I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. And we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. Uh, We have seen in this great letter Paul introducing his apostolic ministry, uh, introducing the content of the gospel. We have seen him address those believers in Rome whom he, he has not had a chance to meet yet, and yet who he has a longing to be with and to preach the gospel to. And then we have seen most recently that thesis statement in verses 16 and 17. That is, that is what everything else in this book is built on, that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is, as it is said, the just shall live by faith. And so it is by faith and faith alone in Christ alone That God gives us a righteous standing before him so that we can stand on judgment day. And now we come to what is uh, one of the more difficult and yet necessary portions of Paul's letter. And notice back in chapter 1 verse 16 that Paul starts with the word for, seamlessly building on what he went before. And then notice in verse 17... Again, he begins with the word for, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And now notice verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, 
haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there is a really marvelous picture of how a passage like this is to be at work in our lives. It's embedded in John Bunyan's great book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And if you know that story, you know that Christian, who is not yet a Christian, has been directed to Scripture. And as he's reading God's Word, and no doubt reading a portion of God's Word, like Romans 1, 18-32, he, he feels the weight and the burden, that massive sin on his back. He, he feels that it's crushing him because he knows that he's in that catalog of depravity that's at the end of this chapter. By the way, you don't have to be in all the sexual sin to be an unthankful and disobedient to parents, by the way. You know that, envious, gossip, slanderers. And he feels that weight of his sin, and yet God sends him the evangelist, and the evangelist is there to direct him what he's supposed to do once he's come to terms with the fact of what he is by nature. And the evangelist tells him, there's a wicked gate, you need to go over there. Essentially, you need to come under conviction of sin, and as you do, you'll be led then to the foot of the cross. And you know what happens when he finally makes it to the cross, that burden falls off his back and rolls into the tomb, the empty tomb. It's a marvelous picture of what has to happen to you if you're going to be saved. And the reason I tell you that this morning is because the Apostle Paul understands That if men and women and boys and girls are going to be saved or going to flee from the wrath to come, they have to hear about the wrath to come. Um, It doesn't help anyone not to be told the undiluted truth about what we are and what we deserve. Now, the Apostle Paul has already set out the good news. You'll remember that back in verses 16 and 17. He has given the good news that God has provided. He has revealed a righteousness. And that righteousness comes freely through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, to everyone. And it's a free gift, and all you have to do is receive it by faith, and faith alone. And yet, the apostle, having set out the solution now, returns to what is the plight of all men. And I want us to consider three things this morning— As we look at this, notice before I do set them out that in verse 17, we're told that in the gospel, God reveals his righteousness to his people. There's a revelation of his provision of righteousness. But notice what Paul says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's a twofold revelation. I want us this morning to consider this revelation of God's wrath. The apostle says essentially three things. One, that there is a righteous revelation of God's wrath. Then he secondly gives us the reason for the revelation of God's wrath. And then finally he gives us the result of the revelation of God's wrath. We'll notice there in chapter 18, verse 1, the apostle is trying 
He's trying to explain what all men are by nature. Now, in this section, he's talking specifically of Gentiles, those who were not the Jewish people, those who were not the Old Covenant people. But then in chapter 2, he's going to explain how all of the Jews are unrighteous by nature and how there's a different manifestation of that unrighteousness, that they had the law and they judged others. But then in chapter 3, he's going to say everyone, there's none righteous, no, not one, Jew, Gentile, all are under the condemnation of God's law. Don't miss this. If you are going to have eternal life, you must get this. You must get this because you will never see your, your need for the good news unless we embrace what is the bad news about who we are by nature. Now, Paul is going to go to great lengths here to explain the righteous revelation of God's wrath. I want to read to you a quote. What is, what is wrath? You know, I, I've had debates with other ministers over the years who have tried to downplay what the scriptures mean when it speaks about the wrath of God. John Murray, the great professor at Westminster Seminary, said this, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction to his holiness. Wrath is a revulsion, a holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction of his holiness. Um, Now, what Paul is doing is he's drawing off of the idea of that last day and the judgment to come. And, And he's talking about here that there are even now manifestations of God's righteous and holy revulsion against everything that is unholy in this world, that that, that end-time judgment day manifestation of wrath is even now breaking into time and space and is being revealed by God. Um, You know, I think it's true that all men and women know that God is the God of wrath. And again, you could go to a thousand churches this morning and have somebody lie to you. I'm not going to do that. There's a day of wrath and judgment coming. And every single thing we've ever done is going to be laid bare on that day. And the scripture says we're going to give an account for every thought, word, and action. And that's a terrible and terrifying thought. And yet it's a true thought. And I'm going to be right there with you with a multitude too great to number. And apart from Christ, there is nothing but inevitable judgment. By the way, this is why Christians get martyred, because they preach this. And this is why others take people straight to hell by not telling them the truth. There is a day of judgment coming. God must pour out his wrath on all unrighteousness. And the Apostle Paul says, even now, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now, I I think in everyone's conscience, we know this. Notice the end of this section. Look at the last verse. Paul says, though those practicing these things know, they know that they deserve to die. They recognize that there has to be some kind of just uh, retribution against wickedness. And yet, men do it, and they affirm those who do it. And I think by nature, all people know how terrible that day is going to be. You know, there's a picture of this in the book of Revelation. God sends these temporal judgments, and People refuse to repent, and then they cry out, and you'll find this throughout the book of Revelation. They cry out and say, let the mountains and the hills fall on us, and let them hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Listen to this. 
St. Clair Ferguson says men and women sense that it would be better for them for a mountain to fall on them and annihilate them that they, than they, they fall under the righteous wrath of God. Um, this is meant to be taken seriously. We are meant to acknowledge that this is what we deserve by nature. Um, you know, we had a baptism this morning, and I always remember that story of John Gerstner going to baptize a covenant child, and, and the mom said, well, hold on, I have to get the long, flowy white gown for my baby. And, and Gerstner said, why do you need a long, flowy white gown? And, and the parents said, well, to denote the child's innocence. And Gerstner said, well, why are we baptizing the child if, if he's innocent? We're saying inevitably that our children and us need the cleansing blood of Jesus, that there's none righteous, that we all deserve the wrath and judgment of God. This, this is, in, this is in, inseparable from our understanding of what God has done in Christ. If we want to know how great the wrath of God is, we look at the cross. And when the Lord Jesus takes our place in every sin that his people have ever done, for whom he is representing are imputed to him, and he has constituted a sinner in our place, and he takes the full wrath of God, the infinitely holy Son of God cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you want to understand the wrath of God, you look at the cross, because no one understands it to the degree that the Lord Jesus did. Now, you know the good news is that he takes that for us. It's a glorious thought. He doesn't leave us with a gnawing conscience. He doesn't leave us just condemned under the guilt of our sin. He provided the one who would become a curse for us. He provided the one who would take that unrighteousness on himself for us. He provided the one who, by this water in baptism, is representing the blood that he would shed that would cleanse the hearts of his people, that would justify his people. And yet we have to come to terms with the fact that there is a, even now, a revelation of the righteousness of God against all unrighteousness. The wrath of God against all unrighteousness. Now, I want us to focus on why. Why, why, would, why would God do this? You know, um, everybody wants to make God in their own image. Paul's actually going to say that here. Um, I heard recently this statement, if, if your God never disagrees with you, it's because you've made yourself your God. So if your God never disagrees with you, it's not God you're worshiping, it's yourself. Um, also, I would say that many people who have what they think are thoughts about God have wrong thoughts about him. And so what the apostle is doing is saying that there are reasons why God has to manifest his wrath. Notice the first is that, that men, by nature, suppress God's truth. The truth of God is suppressed. Notice verse 18, his, his wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, there are a million ways that we suppress the truth. Um, it may be by worshiping other gods. We're going to see about that in a minute. It may be by worshiping our jobs. It may be by self-medicating. It may be by addictions to sex and drugs. It may be any, any number of things by which we try to suppress the truth 
in unrighteousness. Um, By the way, it's exhausting to live your life trying to suppress the truth. Um, For the children here, suppressing the truth is like taking a beach ball and pressing it underwater, and you can never keep it underwater. It's always going to come up. It's always going to resurface and reconfront us. And, and what Paul is saying is that um, all men by nature know that there is a God. They know that he ought to be worshipped. They know that they've been created by him, and they know that they are subject to him. Notice what Paul says. He says, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them or revealed it in them. I had a professor in seminary who used to say to individuals when they said, well, give me evidence, prove, prove to me that there's a God and I'll worship him. And he would look at them and he'd say, you are proof that there's a God because you are the imago Dei, you are the image of God. This is what John Calvin, if you want to read some of the greatest uh, church historical writings, John Calvin at the beginning of the Institutes in chapter 1, sections 4 through 6, is really an exposition of Romans 1, 18 to 32. And, and there he talks about what is called the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine, that everyone has a sense of, of the deity. Everyone knows that, that they live and move and have their being in God. That it's inescapable, that in order to escape it, you would have to destroy yourself which is what so many do. I heard someone say once, and I think they're right, this may be one reason why so many artists live in dark depression and end up taking their lives because they're working with so much beauty and they don't know who to thank for it. They don't know who it comes from, who is the summum bonum, the source of all good and beauty. And yet Paul says, what may be known about God is evident to all men because God has shown it to them. Notice verse 20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. That means that that all men know when they drive across the Don Holt Bridge, ugly as that awful industrial whatever that thing is over here, and they see the sun rising over the marsh, they see that there is a God who is infinite in beauty and goodness. Every time we get a sip of water when we are thirsty beyond belief, we know that there is a God of goodness and beauty. Every time we are blessed by someone else or we enjoy food or any of the comforts of life, we are meant to see these are, these are overflowing manifestations of what is clearly evident about the goodness of the God that created us. I dated a girl. I'm glad I didn't marry her and my wife married me. But she was a Christian, and I was a young believer, and she said to me once, this was up in the upstate during the fall, she said, what sort of God must we serve that even the leaves dying and falling off the trees are full of beauty? That's what Paul's saying. All men know, they see it. They know, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know that there's a God who is infinitely powerful. How? Because the world doesn't just spin off into space. They know that every morning when the sun comes up and the sun sets, they are seeing a manifestation of the wisdom and the power of God at work in the world. When you see 
the intricacies of how scientists can take the things God's created and how they work together for the blessing of mankind. Mechanics and development and technology, all the things that God has created with the molecules that God upholds by the word of his power. They are seeing the wisdom and the power of God at work. By the way, this is why we don't have to give people evidences. If somebody says to you there's not enough evidence, there's plenty of evidence. They are evidence of the invisible, infinite, and eternal God. Notice, Paul says at the end of verse 20, they've been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, but then notice this, so they are without excuse. Um, Bertrand Russell, the great atheist on his deathbed, was asked, um, what are you going to say if you die and realize you were wrong? And you stand before the living God and have to give an account to him. And Russell, hardened in his unbelief, said, I'll say not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. Bertrand Russell was evidence. The very existence of every man, woman, boy, and girl is evidence of the existence of God. There are no atheists in the hereafter. To to deny the existence of that being of which there is none greater is to affirm his existence. That's called the ontological argument. Anselm, one of the early church theologians, said, if God is that being of which there is none greater, then to deny him is to prove his existence. Paul is saying these things are evident, and yet all men are left without excuse. Now, what Paul is saying there about the truth of God being suppressed is that what God reveals in creation is not sufficient to save, but it is sufficient to condemn all men. This is why people say, well, what about those people that have never heard the gospel? They have been confronted every second of their life with the fact that in God they live and move and have their being. That's why Paul says they're without excuse. That's why there's going to be a revelation in this life of God's wrath and in the world to come. Well, notice... Though the other reason is that the glory of God has been exchanged. Notice this. Notice verse 21. Paul says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Listen. If you went, I know we're so dignified in America, we don't have idols everywhere that you can visibly perceive. Most of them are in our hearts. But if you go to most countries, if you go to India and you see two billion people bowing down to carved mice and giving their food to things that are not gods, as if they're gods, you will understand very clearly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. That by nature, all men, knowing there's a god, would rather flip the order and worship the lowest form of creation rather than give him glory. They would exchange the glory of God for an image made like man, animal, creeping things. I want you to think about this this morning. If you think about a gradation of being from highest to lowest, I've already said God is that being of which there is none greater. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And if you think about what the baser forms of creation are, like dirt, and petroleum, and wind, 
you get very quickly how people want to give the totality of their life to worshiping things that are not God and reverse the order and put God at the bottom and put the created things at the top. Now, we are very sophisticated. I don't, I don't expect that any of you have carved idols in your homes. Maybe you do. I don't imagine you do. But we make those much more sophisticated gods of um, pleasure, power, possession. As John Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories. They're continual factories of making idols. Whatever we give our strength to, even if it's good things, whatever we make an ultimate thing, that's idolatry. And Paul says, because men have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator, there, there is necessarily a revelation of God's wrath. Why? Why? Because if God is not worshiped, then God is not God. And if you said to me, that's narcissistic, I would say to you, you're not God and you wish everybody knew who you were. Don't tell me you don't. Hollywood is built on this. Our careers are built on this. Success magazines are built on this. Every one of us in our fallen hearts want everyone to know who we are. Why would it be wrong for the infinite and eternal creator to say, worship me, find your satisfaction in me, delight in me, find me to be your source of goodness, find me to be your source of satisfaction, find me to be your source of provision, Find me to be your source of protection. Find me to be your source of true power. That's what, that's what the apostle is saying. Men have exchanged the infinite fountain of living waters for things that can never satisfy. And that necessarily means we've rejected the God who gives us life and breath in all things. Now, I want to consider thirdly the result of the revelation of God's wrath. Notice the first is that the image of God is defaced. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says, when the glory goes, everything tends to moral chaos. Even the image of God in man is effaced. I mean, I hope I don't even need to give you an example of how that's rampant in our day. When the glory departs, the image is defaced. Because you see, for us to be what God wants us to be as his image bearers, it is utterly dependent on us worshiping him as the one who made us. But when we exchange his glory for things that are not God's, that image is defaced and marred in a thousand different ways. Notice this. Paul says here, in verse 24, therefore God gave them up. I want you to notice verse 24, the beginning of verse 26, and the beginning of verse 28. These are frightening words. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. God gave them up to dishonorable passions and God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Now, Paul is going to talk about what is the, what is the basest or most egregious form of God giving up. But all sexual immorality is God giving up. 
And all of that is God's wrath being revealed. When God gives over, when God gives us over to what our sinful, depraved hearts want because we've exchanged his glory for a lie and worship creatures rather than the creator, God is acting in judicial, in judicial punishment. It, it's a necessary consequence that God gives people over to what they want. Um, C.S. Lewis, when he reflects on what hell is going to be, he said, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those that go to heaven, those that go to hell. There are those that say, thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says, your will be done. That's a very sobering thought. There are those that say to God, your will be done. Or there are those uh, to whom God says, your will be done. If that's what you want, I'll give you over to that. That's the result of the righteous wrath of God being revealed. Um, By the way, when Paul goes here to uh, the sexual sin that he does and sets out in detail the nature of that, I do want you to know this morning what he's doing and why that fits in this context. Paul's been talking about our idolatry, our rejection of God, our knowing that, that he is God and yet exchanging his, glo- his glory for created things. And, and I think what Paul is saying here is when you make yourself ultimate, when you want to make yourself God, the greatest expression of that and the result of that is that you want to act in evil ways on and with those who look and act exactly like you. I don't want to have to flesh that out for you. That's what Paul's saying, that when we turn everything on its head, the ultimate result is that I want to act wickedly toward and with others that are just like me. That's what Paul is saying. By the way, you know, and and for you who may be younger, who may be subject to the internet and all the voices, just hear me this morning, it, it will never do you any good to downplay sexual sin. It will never do you any good If we try to downplay sexual sin in order to gain a hearing, we will never gain a hearing. This is what we need to hear in order to understand our need for Christ. Now, this is not us saying us, them. This is saying all of us, by nature, are like this. And so that's why Paul gives that that later illustration of the image of God defaced. Notice with me just briefly. Notice verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Now notice this, they are filled with evil, covetousness, malice. I'm going to ask you this morning, have you ever had malice in your heart? Have you ever been covetous? Have you ever been full of envy? Have you ever hated someone with murderous hatred? Have you ever been full of strife, deceit, maliciousness? Have you ever gossiped, slandered? Paul says they're haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I remember hearing a Christian say to me once, that's not talking about us. That's talking about only the homosexual constituency in Rome. No, this is talking about all of us. And all of us should be able to see ourselves in the mirror of that that depravity that Paul holds up so that we understand We understand our need for the gospel, which we're going to see in one moment. Now, the last thing, the result, is that the justice of God is denied. Y'all, I don't know if it was about 2018 
maybe 2015 that we started hearing the word justice until we couldn't hear, stand hearing it anymore. Everything's justice, nothing's justice. By the way, when everything's justice, nothing's justice. And when injustice is called justice, nothing's justice. And notice what Paul says here in this verse, and this captures so well this fallen world. Notice this, verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they approve those who practice them. I don't even feel like I need to expound that for you. By nature, they not only do them, but they approve of those who practice them. You know, I was thinking about this over the past five or seven years. Friends of mine in high school who used to use pejorative terms about people in the homosexual community now are the most uh, rabid defenders and Christian-hating people I know. And, And I remember thinking, how did they get from, you know, calling every kid they didn't like, uh, pejorative terms from the homosexual community to now raging to support all forms, every form of sexual perversion. And, and here's, here's how that works. Because they may not be practicing all of those things, but when they look at people doing it, they think, oh, I wish I was as liberated as them. I wish I could be as wicked as them. I wish I could do these things freely. And that's what Paul's saying. They know the righteous judgment of God. They not only practice these things, they approve those who do them. Now, that's a lot. And I'm sure all of you feel great right now. And you shouldn't feel great. But here's the good news. Three times in this section, the apostle says, God gave Three times. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. And then there are another three times in the rest of this letter that the apostle talks about God giving. And the most well-known, and the one I want to share with you this morning, is in Romans 8, where the apostle says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not freely also with him give us all things? When I recognize what I deserve by nature, when I truly come to terms with the fact of what I am by nature, when I feel that burden on my back and I hear the call to go to the wicked gate and then to the foot of the cross, I hear the same apostle saying, this is what we are like by nature. But here's the glory, the God that gives up as a manifestation of his wrath, gives up his son to take the wrath we deserve to forgive us, to redeem us, to heal us, and to bring us to glory. And here's the thing. You don't do anything to get it. He doesn't require you to change. He doesn't say, if you stop in that sexual sin that you're doing right now, then I'll give my son for you. No, he says, for those who are living like this, I have given my son to take the judgment that we deserve. And if we will trust in him freely by his grace, there is, as Paul says in Romans 8, 1 in this book, there is now therefore no condemnation. The righteous revelation of God's wrath is met by that declaration, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope that you will come to terms with the fact that this is what we are by nature, 
I hope that you'll acknowledge who God is and that we deserve his wrath and that it doesn't help for us not to hear about it. But I hope that you will flee to the Lord Jesus. You know, when Christian in that, that segment where evangelist has told him to flee from the wrath to come, he knows what's set out before him. And when everyone is trying to stop him, he plugs his ears and he runs and he cries, life, life, eternal life. And you and I need to plug our ears to this wicked fallen world of which we are a part. We need to flee to Christ from the wrath to come and we need to say life's in wrath and judgment upon us by nature. We know that we deserve your righteous judgment. We know, Lord, that we have exchanged your glory for created things. We have given our our strength and our worship to things that are not God. We have not trusted you as we ought. We have exchanged your glory for base things. And we know, Lord, that in many ways you have given us over to the dictates of our hearts. And yet we are thankful, our Father, that you have given your Son up freely for us. We do pray this morning that you would make us to feel our need for the Lord Jesus more than we have ever felt our need for him. We pray that you would, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.